No, kidding. Morning. It's wonderful to be with you. My name is Bates, and I haven't preached in quite a while, so just super excited for this morning, and what a joy to share on the best sermon that was ever preached, not this one. I'm going to be talking about the best one that was ever preached, preached by Jesus, and uh, yeah, it was such a delight in preparing. God's really convicted my heart on several things, and I'll bring those across, and really trust that uh, Jesus would want to speak not just generally, but specifically to you as we gather this morning as his people. It's wonderful to be able to do this together, and he does have general things that he wants to say to us as a church, but man, he's also a personal God who loves to encounter us where we're at. So I um, really trust that he would do that as we dive into this concluding sermon on this nine-part sermon series through the Sermon on the Mount we've been working through over the past few weeks. And um, I do encourage you to go and find those on our website if you would like to listen. Just been some really incredible uh, thoughts, insights, uh, um, yeah, and really powerful sermons and messages shared with us from various folks in our congregation. This is the beauty of being in a church that has a preaching team, is we get to see the gifts of God given to different individuals uh, presented and displayed in a way that we can all learn and grow uh, week after week. And so very grateful to be part of a community like that. And um, I just want to honor specifically Paul as he's led our preaching team over the years and built up a team that's been able to do this. So very grateful for that. I do want to pray for myself this morning uh, for various reasons, but I'll share those later. Thank you, Father, for your word that is alive uh, and that is real and that is true and that is good uh, and that was brought to us thousands uh, of years ago, hundreds of years ago, yet is still entirely relevant, entirely applicable, and entirely powerful even today as we hear it this morning. And so we do welcome you, Holy Spirit, to bring your word to life in my heart and in each of our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So, um, Sermon on the Mount, it's been amazing. And um, yeah, I've just really loved this series myself. So I hope you have too. I do want to give a quick little kind of, for those who have missed this, the, the series and you're joining for this morning, I do see a few new faces, you're coming to the conclusion, but hopefully this one line will ca- kind of catch the heart and really the big idea behind the whole Sermon on the Mount. And it's this, what's the Sermon on the Mount all about? Well, it really gives us a glimpse into what the transformed life of a believer or a follower of Jesus looks like. It gives us a glimpse into what a life transformed by the gospel looks like. And so it's sort of two and a half, three chapters long in the Bible, um, but it is just rich and deep and glorious. And I want to encourage us to get stuck into it. I remember um, one of the older gentlemen who used to be part of One Hope, he's passed on subsequently. His name was Doug, just an incredible man of God. And he always, whenever we'd meet, he'd always reference the Sermon on the Mount. And I realized that as you grow older, all the scriptures are so powerful and important, but man, this sermon is just absolute gold for us in the Bible. So if you're not familiar with the Bible, you haven't read it before, that's okay. But I do want to encourage you to start. You can use one of these guys on your phone. You can get a Bible app anywhere in the world. In fact, these things are getting the Bible to places it's never gone before today in our age. So that, praise God for cell phones and also there's other things that they're not so helpful for, but praise God for that. <laughs> uh, 
Uh, oh, I'm getting distracted. Sorry, let me focus. Um, but do go and read the Sermon on the Mount. Um, you'll find it anywhere on your phone, Google, Matthew chapters 5 through 7. And the big idea here is that God is really interested in our hearts, the deeper part of our being. He's super, super, super interested in, even more so than the external part of our lives, the actions and so on that we do. And that's the major difference, right, between faith and relationship with God and any other religious system. Every other religious system judges you based on your external performance, no matter where it comes from. Christianity, you're actually predominantly judged by God based on your heart position and then also your actions. And that's a wonderful relief because each of us know that often our actions don't align very well with our heart, right? So praise God that he really sees what's going on on the inside and we can really commit that part of our lives to him. And the overflow becomes actions that please him also and that really start to transform the world around us. And so the sermon makes it clear that God desires not only right actions, but here's the one-liner, but rather right actions that flow from a heart that is aligned with his. Is that on a slide? Is it not? Hopefully. There we go. Right action that flows from a heart that is aligned with his heart. And that's really the drum that Jesus is beating right throughout these, um, these few chapters. So I remember a few years back, uh, my wife Jen and I, um, we were here at Stellenbosch University studying. It's becoming more and more years back as we get older, had to admit it. Anyway, we used to visit the public hospital there on Merriman Road uh, with our life group, which is in our churches, smaller groups of people that meet in the week to really stir one another up, encourage one another, and really grow in God. If you're not part of one of those, I encourage you to join one, and you can chat to me afterwards if you'd like to. It's a very faith-stirring and growing part of this church community. Anyway, so we'd go with our life group to these uh, hospitals and just visit the people who were there and pray with them. And uh, we'd been doing this for a few months, and, uh, and then it started to pique the interest of some of Jen and my non-Christian friends who we were around at university. And they'd actually asked, hey, can we join you and come along on, I think it was Tuesday evenings, we'd go to your hospital visits. And we're like, yeah, sure, no problem. We'd love to have you join us. And so they did. And I remember particularly uh, one of my friends down the hall from me, I stayed in residence in Endrach up the road here, uh, asked if he could come along, let's call him Peter, for, uh, to keep him anonymous. And um, Peter uh, was kind of you know, an interesting guy. We kind of knew each other, but not super well, and we'd connected a bit. And I'd obviously shared with him what we were doing at the hospital, so he came along one day. And I remember, <laughs> God knows he's got a good sense of humor, hey? So we walk into the hospital, and um, we arrive in the hallway where all the gentlemen are, and we've you know, gone into a few rooms, knocked, chatted with the people, and prayed. And so we go into this one room, and there's just two beds. And we walk in, and uh, we go to the gentleman on the left, I remember, and we're chatting to him, and we pray for him. And as we're praying, I noticed that the nurses walk in with a blanket. I'm like, wow, that's interesting. And uh, they put it over the guy on the other bed. I'm like, wow, that's very interesting. I haven't seen this before. And uh, so as we finished praying for this gentleman, we walk across to this gentleman, and we realized he's just succumbed to his illness or whatever it is. He's just died. And I was like, wow, this is quite a moment, Lord, where my friend who's kind of interested in you but doesn't quite know you has now had this experience of like, okay, what do we do? Please, Jesus, help here. And he just actually said, why don't you pray for him? I was like, okay. So I said to my friend, Peter, well, why don't we pray for him and see if he'll be raised from the dead? He's like, okay, cool. 
<laughs> so, um, <laughs> yeah, so we did. We prayed for this gentleman, and uh, he wasn't raised from the dead, but what was raised from the dead was my friend Peter's heart, who was suddenly like, wow, this is real. This is not just a, a faith that's proclaimed in words, but something is alive and active here, and subsequently he started to take Jesus seriously and uh, grow in faith uh, slowly over time, which was just wonderful, but it was just this humor of God. You know, this had never happened before or since, but the day my friend joins me. And um, why am I sharing all that? Well, as I was reflecting on that, I was, I was wondering why these friends of ours, who had not been interested in coming to church, we'd invited them, no, not keen, not been interested in coming to our small groups, or life group, not keen, but we didn't even have to invite. We're interested to come and see what was going on in the hospital where we were visiting and praying. And I think there are probably two main reasons. This is going to have a point in the end, don't worry. Um, I think there are probably two main reasons. And I think the first one is, specifically in our generation, uh, and probably actually in all generations at a deeper heart level, we each seek a life of significance. We want our lives to count for something more than just ticking the time by, just having a job or not, having kids or not, and then dying. We, we desire more than that. We desire purpose. We desire our lives to count. And so I think they saw something like happening here that we were doing in the hospital, and it wasn't like special. We just go and talk to people and pray. It's basically what we did, but to them it seemed special. And they wanted to come and have a piece of it so that their lives could count. And then secondly, I think the, and this is the reason I want to bring home today, is I think they were genuinely interested to see whether this Jesus that we spoke about and they could see that in Jane and my life, Jesus was doing something. He was transforming us. We were being made different because of him. But they wanted to see if it made not just a difference to us, but actually to the society and the world around us. What difference does it make? You know, religion doesn't have the greatest rap. Christianity doesn't have the greatest rap if you look at some of the history. In fact, it would seem detrimental to society often and not um, really beneficial to society and to society around us if you want to look at a specific piece of the history of it. A lot of it is exceptionally beneficial to society, but we won't go into that today. The point I'm trying to make is that Christians and non-Christians alike really do want to know, does Christianity really make a difference? Does it really make a difference? And not only in the individual, but also in the collective, in the community and the society around us. And I think if we're honest, we ask the same question of ourselves often, right? Is this thing we're doing, are these groups we're part of, is this faith we profess really making a difference? But not just to me, but also to those around me. And I would contend that the Sermon on the Mount, which we're going to look at the conclusion of today, would say, yes, it absolutely does. It absolutely makes a difference to the individual and to community if we'll live the way that Jesus instructs us to live with his empowering grace to live that way. And what a joy. That means any of us as ordinary and plain and seemingly insignificant how we might feel can see our lives made significantly better, significantly more useful, helpful, life-giving, joyful, all those wonderful things, but also we can make a positive difference in the world around us. That's pretty cool, I think. 
And so the Sermon on the Mount would say, yes, Christianity does make a difference. And uh, in, in um, Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, just before the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus invites those who were around him at the time, but each and every one of us, even as we sit here today, into a life-giving, eternal life-giving relationship with him, a life of discipleship. He says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In other words, turn to me, because God is with you, and he wants you to be his child. In fact, he's saying, I am God. (laughs) Jesus is saying, I'm God, come and follow me, and you will be his people. And he then goes on to unpack kind of what the life of discipleship looks like in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7. We've covered that in the last few weeks. I just want to give a few kind of highlight points of the contents of the Sermon on the Mount. Don't worry, this won't take too long, that we have looked at in the past eight weeks of this series. And it's largely been instructional teaching from Jesus on how to live in a way that pleases him, honors him, uh, brings life, and, um, and yeah, is glorifying to his name. Okay, so we're going to bring those up. Here we go. So he looks at qualities of a life that can be congratulated. He looks at a call to courageous influence, not corrupted influence. Talks about loving the scriptures, in other words, the, the words of God. Speaks about radical love, devotion before an audience of one. We'll touch on that again today. Pursuing that which is worthy of our lives, not wasting our lives on menial, trivial, temporary things, but pursuing things that will last well beyond our lives and into eternity. Overcoming anxiety about the future and the pre- preoccupation with not so important things. Isn't that easy? in our day and age, to get distracted with things that truly are not so important. And then how not to try and help each other change, and then encouragements for prayer and love. That's at a very high level. I want to, and my closing encouragement to each of us in the room today is going to be to go and read the Sermon on the Mount in this coming week. And where Jesus speaks to you through his sermon and where he confronts you to do something about what he says, to actually commit to that one thing and ask for his help to do it. That's going to be my encouragement from today to each one of us. So we're going to look at uh, verses... Alex, are you ready to come up? Where are you? In a minute, Alex is going to read for us. Uh, We're going to look at verses 13 through 29 today of chapter 7. And these are the closing verses of the sermon. Um, Jesus doesn't really give us any more instruction. He gives us these warnings, these encouragements. There's three of them. And I do want to say that what we're going to read today is confronting. It is challenging, and Jesus meant it that way. And so I want to be faithful to the text and do that. Uh, it does might create a little bit of confrontation. <laughs> I don't really love conflict generally as a personality type. So... Uh, it's going to be a fun morning, especially as we look at what Jesus has to say. But I did think about it, and I was, uh, I was driving down Franchuk Pass the other day, and uh, the storms a few months back kind of washed away quite a lot of the road, and it's quite narrow as it is. And um, I was very, very grateful for the warning signs on the road <laughs> that helped me prevent the pieces of the road that are washed away. Otherwise, I would have maybe been doing flick flacks in my car down the side of the mountain, which is not so pleasant. Um, so warnings are also, can also be a really good thing and a really helpful thing for us. And so I believe that's what Jesus' intention with what he shares today at the end of the sermon. 
And so when we, um, when we do follow Jesus, when we listen to his word and we follow it, when we live life in his kingdom, it does start to change us, to transform us. And that results in society around us starting to be transformed and change as well, as we show up differently in different environments, as our heart attitudes start to change, as we start to think differently about life, as our secret worlds that no one else sees start to look more pleasing and honoring to God. It does make a difference. And so Jen and my friends could see in those hospital visits however many years ago that yes, Jesus' words do deeply transform us. They didn't doubt that, but they also do have the power to transform the society around us. Alex, will you come up and read for us from Matthew chapter 7 and verse 13 through 29. We're going to be reading in the NIV this morning. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life, and only few find it. Watch out for false prophets, they come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes, or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name drive out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down and the streams rose and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall. It had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. Okay, wonderful. Thanks, Alex. Okay, so let's dive. Ooh, hello. Let's dive right in. Remember, Jesus is talking about a heart that aligns with his heart in the Sermon on the Mount. And he gives us these three warnings with kind of three metaphors uh, today. And uh, each metaphor is in a pair. There's the gate that is broad versus the one that is narrow. Those are the two gates which we'll talk about. There's the tree that bears bad fruit versus the tree that bears good fruit. There's the two trees. And there's the house built on the sand versus the house that is built on the rock. That looks at two different foundations. And as Jesus 
looks at these as he concludes his sermon, right? There's been a whole body of incredible content and instruction. He's now landing his sermon, not giving further instruction, but rather encouragement to follow his instruction. Each pair here highlights another reason that we should take the sermon seriously, that we should listen to the words that he speaks and we should apply them and live by them. He's really saying, disciple, remember that's who he's addressing the sermon to, disciple, follower of me, build your life on the rock. If I had to summarize what this portion is saying, he's saying, build your life on the rock. Who's the rock? It's Jesus. It's his word, and it's his presence. So if you want to say it's a person, it's his preach, and it's his presence. That came to me in the singing, so I thought I'd have to share it. You know, three Ps. Didn't think about it earlier. Um, And I think that's what Jesus is really saying here, right? Build your life on me. Build your life on the rock. And here are warnings if we don't. So let's dive into them. Uh, Verse 13 through 14, the narrow and the wide gate. Jesus is encouraging us to, and his disciples, to enter the narrow gate, because that is the one that leads to life. He says here there's two gates that connect to two roads, one narrow, one broad, that ultimately take us to two different destinations, one to life and one to destruction. So what's quite interesting about these two verses, I don't know if you've read them before, I think they're relatively familiar. Uh, I've always interpreted them understanding that the narrow gate is, in other words, alluding to those who follow Jesus and are his, and ultimately will be with him in eternity. And the broad gate was those who don't follow Jesus and are not his and ultimately will end in eternal damnation, separate from God. That is not the case. Classic example of needing to understand the context to understand the text. Because remember, Jesus is speaking to his disciples here. There aren't those who don't follow him in his direct audience. I don't know if that's a shock to any of you. It was to me when I was studying it this week. I was like, oh, wow, I didn't quite get this in the past. Not a train smash, though, because what it actually did is answer some deep kind of tensions that I've had in my heart for quite a long time. And uh, basically what Jesus is saying here, he's talking to his disciples and he's saying, enter the narrow gate, not the wide one. What is the narrow gate? It's a call to radical obedience and followership of Jesus. It's a call to saying no to everything else and yes to him. And if I think of the narrow gate, I think of those turnstiles at like a rugby or soccer stadium. It's like, to try and get in at the beginning once you've given your ticket. You know, you hardly fit through. And that's what Jesus is saying. The wide gate's easy to fit through. When they open the big gates at the stadium, everyone can go through. It's much easier. And so most people choose it. But what is that wide gate? The wide gate, I would contend, is really just the life that doesn't put Jesus at the center. Knows him acknowledges him, but really chooses a life of ease and comfort and my own pleasure and delight over what Jesus would have me do in every situation. The wide gate really speaks to not prioritizing and focusing on and giving full attention with our whole lives to Jesus and his teaching. Now that sounds like a really high bar, right? And a really high call. 
And I would contend that I think Jesus is calling us to that <laughs> in the scripture today. He's calling us to wholehearted, full devotion, commitment, and focus on him and his teaching for all our days. Thank you, Jesus, that he hasn't left, to do, left us to do that alone. He's given us his Holy Spirit, if you're a follower of Jesus, to strengthen us, to help us, and enable us to live the life that leads to flourishing and joy and not destruction. And so my question to myself and to you this morning is, do you do that? Do you live a life of wholehearted, fully committed devotion to Jesus? And maybe you're saying, Bates, really? Do we have to? Isn't it okay that I just say, okay, yes, thank you, Jesus, and I'll see you one day in heaven again? I think there's so much more for us. So, in fact, I know there's so much more for us. Do we live like that? Are we deeply committed to love and pray for our enemies? Deeply committed to love and pray for our enemies. That's what Jesus is encouraging us to do in the Sermon on the Mount. Are we deeply committed to controlling our eyes so that our hearts will not lust after another man or woman? That's what Jesus encouraged us to do in the Sermon on the Mount. Are we deeply committed to giving generously and in secret to the poor and the marginalized? Deeply committed, not just a passing thought. I'm speaking to myself here as much as I speak to you this morning. Are we deeply committed to forgiving every single person who has wronged us? Every single person who has wronged us. That's what Jesus is calling us to in the scriptures. Is Jesus' life and teaching the highest priority for you and deepest passion of your life? I'm going hard after this this morning because this is something that I believe the Scripture is telling us, but also something that for me, and this is that tension I was talking about earlier, really, really saddens my heart, is when I meet people who say they're Christians and have been for a long time, but honestly, I couldn't tell. Nothing about their life, lifestyle, or choices would tell me that they're absolutely in love with Jesus. And that's deeply saddening. It's an indictment on the faith. Because then those who are looking in on the outside think, well, how's my life going to be any different if I'm committed and devoted to Jesus? I'm not saying we need to be these superstars of perfection. It's not what Jesus is calling us to. He's not calling us to perfection. He's calling us to devotion. Very different things. He's saying, I'm not calling you to look perfect and be perfectly prettied up. I'm saying, I'm looking for your focus, your attention, and your commitment to me. And my heart gets deeply saddened when that is not evident in my own heart from time to time and in those that I meet with. And so I've made a personal commitment to when I meet folks who I can't tell, they say they're Christians, but it's hard to see, not to point fingers and judge and look down upon, but actually to pray for and say, Lord, and this is my commitment, my ongoing commitment is to say, Father, would they taste and see your goodness, your beauty, your majesty, all that you have offered and given to us and for us, so that we'd walk in the fullness. And I've seen that in several of my friends who have gone from what I would call nominal or just being called a Christian to really living for Jesus. It makes all the difference. And this, I believe, is what Jesus is calling us to here, wholehearted devotion and commitment to him. As I was prepping this week, I really had a sense that some of us in the room this morning would feel like your life has drifted towards the wide gate 
and the wide road that leads to regret, that leads to wasted potential, that leads to pain and loss. It leads to forfeiting so much of what God has for us and to loss of reward, his eternal reward in the end. And I just got a sense that some of us in the morning, in this morning feel like you've drifted that way and God would call you back. You say, no, no, come into the narrow gate. Follow me and experience true life. It feels restricting. It feels narrow. And yet Jesus says it's the best thing we could ever do. The wide gate is easy. It's relaxed. But it leads to destruction. And so Jesus' encouragement this morning is, hey, come and enter the narrow gate. Follow me. Give your life fully to me. And if you do feel like you've kind of slipped into a bit of a lukewarmness, where you wouldn't say your life is characterized by absolute commitment to following Jesus in every moment, in every decision, then I really want to encourage you to respond to prayer later in the sermon where you can really just invite him in again. Say, Jesus, help me to fix my eyes on you. I want to live for you and you alone. And so that's the wide and the narrow gates. I said we're talking about warnings this morning. They can feel heavy, but actually they're really good for us because we all desire life, fullness, joy, peace. But it only comes really, as Jesus says, through the narrow gates, which is in absolute devotion and fellowship to him. Okay, so that's the two gates. Let's look at the two trees. I feel like I'm going to run long. Okay, let's go faster. Okay, so the two trees from verse 15 to 23. One bears good fruit and one bears bad fruit. Reminds me of a lemon tree we used to have where I was growing up in our, um, in our front yard and in the home I grew up in. And it was just this anemic, sickly, terrible thing. Never really grew above this high. Never had more than about 10 fruit. They were all mangled, and just, and, but it still, was still alive somehow. But it was just this terrible, terrible lemon tree. And then there's a, compared to this road we walked down and where we stay in Valkafon, and there's this lemon tree. It's impossible to count how many fruit that thing has every year. It is unbelievable. And they're like this. Lemons, like, I've never seen such massive lemons. Um, and it's just this fruitful tree that is planted in good soil and produces fruit season after season after season that is good to taste and good for use. And so Jesus uh, speaks about the good tree that bears good fruit and the bad tree that bears bad fruit, specifically in reference to false prophets. But then also I would say in reference to our own lives. The warning he gives here just kind of gives me cold chills sometimes when I read it. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. And these people are performing miracles. In Jesus' name, they're driving out demons. And Jesus will say to some people like this, I never knew you. Sure, Lord, may that not be true of me. Can I be assured that that will not be true of me? I would say, yes, we can, if we'll read the sermon and take it to heart. So this sermon really helps to safeguard us from false prophets and false Christian lives. The devil would really not like us to follow Jesus' path. And he does know that we as people are influenceable, specifically by well-articulated, persuasive words from individuals who are gifted in a certain way to present them in a certain way. 
That is true, and when it's done to the praise and honor of God, it's a good and beautiful thing, but it can be so warped. And so I would say this is what Jesus is referring to when he's talking about false prophets. They've spoken about right through the Old Testament, so it's not a new thing. In fact, it's a very old thing, and it's still a thing today. We haven't passed the age of the false prophets. They are still around (laughs) very much. They look like sheep, harmless. Look like they're lost and wandering. That's what sheep do, lost and wandering, but they look harmless. But actually, they're wolves, Jesus would say. They've got personality and charm and conviction, sometimes scholarship, qualifications, popularity, all these things, and they're actually false prophets, and they will face judgment and condemnation on that final day when Jesus returns. He'll say, get away from me. I did not know you. You did not know me. And so in an age of self-publication, as my brother likes to call it, um, you know, the age of social media, it's really not difficult to self-publish, to post, to share your thoughts and opinions globally in a matter of seconds with zero qualifications, zero uh, reputable uh, character, nothing else. In the previous ages, it took years and age and a lot of money and character and all these things to be allowed to publish something that would be distributed globally. And that was a wonderful kind of gatekeeper for anything that was, for any opinions that were shared globally. And now it's not the case. And so we live in this age and we just want to be, I just want us to be aware of that, that there are voices and there are influential people who may look like sheep, but they may actually be wolves. I'm not saying freak out and panic and have paranoia, not at all. That's the beauty of community is we can discern and we can sift together what are voices that we should and can listen to and what are those that are not helpful and possibly even, sounds extreme, but false prophets, those who are leading God's people astray. Let me tell you, they are very, very real and alive in the world today. Uh, I work for an organization called Mergon, invests and makes money and gives it away to ministries across Africa and the Middle East. And so we work with these ministries and had this wonderful lens into what God's doing in several nations across the world. (laughs) Let me tell you, false prophets are alive and well today (laughs) and hundreds upon hundreds of thousands of people are following these individuals and it's actually devastating. It It is really wrecking and ruining the lives of many. And so this is not an old phenomenon, it's very much a current phenomenon. And I just want us to uh, uh, um, heed Jesus' warning here to say, let us listen to his, vo- his words, his voice, his Sermon on the Mount, and then other individuals who love and are devoted and follow Jesus who are walking on the narrow road, let us listen to those voices and let those influence us, and not others. So what does he mean by the good and the bad fruit? Well, we can often tell a false prophet by the fruit of their lives, which we can use the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. Kidsman people, self-control and (laughs) gentleness. I was actually singing a kids' ministry song there, trying to remember it, which we did about nine years ago. So they were kids' ministry songs, typically, except in me, obviously. So whether lives are characterized by these traits or not is a helpful indicator of um, whether we should listen to these voices or not. Again, not perfection, but devotion and commitment to that kind of life that sees our lives look like the fruit of the Spirit. And then another one is, uh, and this is 
this is very rife. Um, but uh, how can we tell a false, a false prophet? Are they teaching and truly believe the gospel? Here's the gospel. The gospel centers on the person and work of Jesus. Jesus is the unique son of God. He died and rose again. His death is how he gives you and I the gift of eternal forgiveness. He alone is qualified to save us from guilt and the power of sin. His resurrection means he is alive. And he alone is qualified to give you the gift of life and the spirit of God. False prophets, what do they do? They'll either undermine this message or they'll distract you from this message. So it'll either be direct contradictions to the scriptures. Again, how do we figure that out? How do we know? Community. Life groups are great for that. How do we figure out and know whether this is true or not, whether this is the gospel? And then the one that's very, very prevalent when it's not outright undermining of the gospel will be a distraction. Towards what? Typically taking the focus of the, the gospel and putting it on either personal fulfillment or the acquisition of wealth otherwise known as the prosperity gospel. That thing is killing people's faith in our continent day by day, prosperity gospel. feel disappointed by God because he hasn't given me material benefit when he never promised it. And so false prophets uh, promise these things. They're pursuing fame and these things. I don't want to villainize false prophets. I actually want us to see a heart of let's pray that God would turn around hearts that are pursuing their own means and end and actually pursue him so that the influence they have would see those who are following their influence worship and follow Jesus and not some other agenda. Great traits of false prophets is um, a very subtle human-centeredness over a very obvious God-centeredness. When the words you hear are bless you and not bless him more uh, over and over, it's a great red flag. These words are chilling from verse 22 to verse 23. Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, drive out demons in your name for many miracles? <laughs> and then you will tell me, I never knew you get away from me, you evildoer. So let's go from looking at false prophets to making these words of good fruit and bad fruit personal. How do we do that? Well, the fruit references our actions, those things we do, right? Those things that can be visible and seen by others and some of our hard attitudes and so on, which typically overflow into actions. But I'd love us on this point just to give a little uh, litmus test or self-test for our own hearts that I find really, really helpful, and I think Jesus is alluding to here, is... What do we do? Out of the overflow of our hearts, our mouths speak, right? And our actions happen. So what's going on in our hearts does get reflected in our actions. And so we can take a little account of our actions, of the way we behave towards those who are far from Jesus, towards those who don't have much, towards those who've offended or um, hurt us. But I would say, and this is the thing I'd love to share, is that even more telling test of where our hearts are at, whether they're really in and devoted to Jesus or whether they're kind of pursuing our own thing is, have a look at your reactions. Now that sounds like a little twist of words, but what happens when something really prods you and you don't expect it? 
How do you react? And I think it's typically in those moments that we really see where our hearts are at. When that person pulls in front of you in the traffic, if you have a car and are driving, how do you react? Why are you smiling? <laughs> hey, man, this is a good test on everything. Hey, when the kids are really frustrating me, <laughs> they're amazing, so it never happens. No jokes, it does happen. How do I react? And to be honest, I have not been reacting well in the last two or three months. And so what does that tell me? It tells me something. And so am I going to take time to pause on that? There's something I'm not believing. There's something just in my humanity that is weak and failing. I've come to the conclusion that it's actually just been a pretty brutal year and I'm actually just genuinely tired. I need to rest. So our reactions tell us a lot about our heart position. And so drawing back to the scripture, when the fruit of your life is not looking so yoba, or maybe it is looking very nice, great question to ask. What are my reactions revealing about where my heart is at and the health of my heart, the inmost part of my being. Okay, two foundations. Uh, we really will go quickly now. And this is actually kind of the crux of the message to build our lives upon the rock as Jesus wraps up the Sermon on the Mount. He talks about building a, our lives on a solid foundation or on a shaky foundation. Think of building a sandcastle on the beach, right? It doesn't last long. The water comes, it washes away. Think about building a solid house on a massive granite uh, boulder, there's far less chance of that thing washing away when the storms of life come. This is a throwback to another kids' ministry song. Funnily, I didn't actually grow up in church, so I only came to follow Jesus like sometime later in high school, but I led kids' ministry for a few years. So, does anyone know the one about the wise man who built his house on the rock? Yes, you do. I was hoping someone was going to sing it. The rains came down, the floods rose up, but the house on the rock stood firm. Very good. Okay, had to include that. Can never forget this message from that kids' ministry song. And it's really the take-home message, I would say, from the sermon today. Because remember, the audience uh, here, both of them, those who build their lives on the solid foundation and those who build on the sand, have heard the same message from Jesus. They've heard the same sermon. But it's what they've done with it that makes all the difference. And the reason I think this, this metaphor that Jesus uses is so powerful, he's such a genius teacher, Jesus. Hey? If you look at a whole lot of the stories and metaphors he tells, they're just unparalleled in human history. So the genius I love about this metaphor is that when you build your house on the sand, it's quick. You don't need to put down quick foundations. And when it's sunny, it seems like a great idea, much more effective, efficient, happens faster, still got a house. But when you build your life upon the rock, man, it's not easy to dig foundations. It takes time. But of course, when the tests of life come, and they will, and when the challenges and reality of the world we live in come, and it will, what happens to the house? On the sunny day, the one on the sand stands tall. On the rainy day, it falls. And so that's Jesus' encouragement, right? Build your house, your house of your life on Jesus on his teaching and on his presence or his kingdom. And as is alluded to in verse 22, which we read earlier, the ultimate storm that will come is known as judgment day. Jesus will return one day. He's come before, 2,000 years ago. He will come again. 
And on that day, all of us will be laid bare before him. Every single one of us. All will be made known for all to see. And in that day, those who are not built on the rock, it's not going to be a pretty day. But those whose lives who are built on the rock will fare wonderfully. So that's Jesus' encouragement, as he referenced earlier, right? That we would say, Lord, Lord, and it be sincere and genuine. And so when he returns and says, my people come to me, say, yes, I did know you. You are mine. Come and be with me forever. And then maybe just one more brief encouragement, then I'll really try and lead us into a close here, is that Jesus is saying here, what does it look like to build your life on the rock? doesn't mean just listening to his words, like we hear this morning, preaching to myself, preaching to you. doesn't mean just that. No, I think what he's saying is it, it means two more things. It means retaining his words, so not just reading his words or hearing his words like we do now, or if you read your Bible in the morning or whenever you do, and then just kind of going on and forgetting about it. No, he's saying retain them, remember them, so that why? So that we can put them into practice, so that we can apply them. He's saying it's not good enough to just sit in a gathering like this or read your Bible and feel moved and then it not actually cause any movement in your life. It's not good enough to just feel some inspiration and then not actually inspire life transformation or life change or something to be different. He's saying the word, his word, should cause and translate into life change. Our thoughts need to change. Our beliefs, our lifestyles, and our habits need to change when they are confronted by his words. We need to apply them. And that's what it looks like to build our lives upon the rock. So when the floods come and the streams rise and the wind blows and beat against our house, it doesn't fall with a great crash, but it stands firmly. And so my question to you is, how sure are you this morning that your house, the house of your life, the metaphorical house of your life is built upon the rock of Jesus, upon the solid foundation of him and his word. Because we can be sure of that. We surrender to him, we invite him into our lives to strengthen us, encourage us, empower us to live according to his word, according to the Sermon on the Mount and more. Well, that's what he's encouraging us to do and that's what a life built on the rock looks like. I'm going to read verse 28 and 29 as we come to Closer to the close. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as the teachers of the law. The crowds were amazed at his teaching. Question to me is, am I amazed by God's teaching, Jesus' teaching, or am I just familiar with it? Is it just another thing, another thing I've read? Here are four things that have amazed me about Jesus' teaching, and maybe they stand out for you. The one is that the way, the, way that, uh, the pictures and themes of his teaching connect with our everyday lives. Listen to this. Jesus speaks of salt, light, pens, brothers, courts, prisons, fires, eyes, hands, knives, legal documents, sun, rain, trumpets, religious buildings, doors, rooms, perfume, faces, moth, rust, thieves, treasures, masters, money, food, drink, clothing, birds, flowers. I'm, I won't carry on. But 
very relevant things to our everyday life, right? Jesus was not some holy, super spiritual dude removed from our reality. He came as God in the flesh and dwelt among us. He lived among us. He was human just like us and still also fully God at the same time. Blows my mind, but it's true. And so he could teach very real, very relevant ways into our daily lives. His teaching is not outdated. Teaches into such relevant themes like persecution, significance, conflict resolution, sexual purity, divorce, integrity, alternate spiritualities. He's not scared of other spiritual powers of this world. Money, materialism, anxiety, all these things are familiar to us. We're still human. Although it's 2,000 years later, we feel like we're smarter and cleverer, and we look down on those 100 years behind us. You know, 100 years ago, what did they know? They were so doff. I wonder what the guys 100 years you know, down the line are going to think of us. Let's just be humble as we find ourselves in this moment in history. But the words of God will still be relevant, will still apply, because he's the one who's made us. Secondly, the sheer authority and boldness with which Jesus teaches I don't know about you, but what did the people in that time mean when they said that Jesus taught as one who had authority and not as the teachers of the law? I was like, what, what could it be? And then looked into it a little bit, and really what the teachers of the law did is they just referenced other rabbis when they were teaching. So Rabbi so-and-so said X. Other Rabbi so-and-so said X. And Jesus said, I say. <laughs> it has been said, but I say. And very clearly, he was basically saying, I am God, to Jewish ears. And he taught with authority, an authority that came from God. He didn't just share kind of learnings and studies he had done, but he shared divine revelation straight from the heart of the Father. Thirdly, the way Jesus seems to embody the very teaching he's brought, right? Talking about false prophets earlier, a lot of hypocrisy typically in false prophets' lives, and to be honest, in our own, right? Jesus is not an absolute inch of hypocrisy. There's not a reference in Scripture that we can see where Jesus didn't live by what he said. He listened to his own teaching and lived by it perfectly. He was God, so it was possible for him. But he can help us do that more and more. And then lastly, Fourth point is that most importantly, the way the teaching that Jesus gives is not just from him, but it is about him. Many people think the Sermon on the Mount just shows us that Jesus is a great moral teacher and that he kind of knows his thing, but maybe not that he's actually the unique son of God. And a closer look would reveal that. He calls us first and foremost to trust in him before he calls us to trust in and follow his teaching. That is super important. Don't hear me saying today, you better do X, Y, and Z. What I'm saying today is trust in a person, Jesus, and then follow after him by doing X, Y, and Z. It's not a call to radical living uh, before it's actually a call to radical faith in Jesus the sermon. I want to read this quote from C.S. Lewis, which is a real challenge to our generation, to our world, and to you if you're sitting in this this room this morning and checking out faith, you may be a bit skeptical, you're not sure, you're just like, hey, let me just see and explore. 
And uh, I'll let C.S. Lewis do the talking around how he comes and addresses some of the false beliefs of our generation, some of the words of the false prophets who've led us astray, some of the words of those who've got a very evil agenda also trying to lead our world astray. This is what he says. Hopefully it's there, yeah. This is in his book, Mere Christianity. He says, I'm trying to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, Jesus. I'm, really, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher alone. He would either be a self-deceived lunatic or else he would be a deceiving devil. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up as a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. And so one hope, anyone who's visiting us this morning, Jesus' encouragement would be build your life upon the rock. Build your life upon Jesus, his words, and his kingdom. He is the Son of God. He is the one who has come and died and risen so that we can experience life forever with him. As I mentioned earlier, my encouragement to each of us this morning is to go and read the Sermon on the Mount again. Maybe you've done it in the past few weeks, maybe you haven't, maybe you've never done it. Search it in Google, Sermon on the Mount. Go and read it. Read it more than once. If you listen to it, don't read it, it'll take you 15 minutes. Not long. And really just open yourself up and say, God, what would you want to say to me through the Sermon on the Mount? And as he does speak, which he will, if you'll listen, ask him to help you to apply that into your life. Beauty of the Sermon on the Mount, deeply practical, deeply applicable into each and every one of our lives and circumstances. So my encouragement to you is to do that, to start building your life, if you haven't already, on the rock by reading the Sermon on the Mount this week.